If you can grab your um, Trinity hymnal in front of you on page 877, as we have done in the past, we're going to look at um, what our shorter catechism, we're going to let the shorter catechism frame our reference of the Lord's Prayer. And on page 877, question 105, I almost did 106, 105, the confession or catechism says this, what do we pray in the fifth petition? In the fifth petition, which is, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, we pray that God, for Christ's sake, would freely pardon all our sins, which we are the rather which we are the rather encouraged to do, to ask because of his grace we are enabled from the heart to forgive others. As, we, as we've looked in the, in the past couple of weeks, the, the Lord's Prayer it, it has an earthward movement to it. We pray that God in heaven comes to us through the giving of his name, through the proclamation of his kingdom, through his will being done on earth that is in heaven. And last week we asked that God would give us our daily bread, our daily substance, what we need to survive in community with him. And I got really bad news. Today we're going to talk about forgiveness. Not only the forgiveness that we receive, but the forgiveness that we also have to give. But I want us to look at two things first when we about asking God to forgive us our sins. When we are doing this, we are acknowledging, as the confession says, that we need something. We need forgiveness. And we've already received this forgiveness through Christ in faith and repentance. So why? If we've already received this in Christ, why are we asking for it? Right? We believe in justification. We confess our sins. We repent. We turn from our sins and move in the other direction. We move away from Adam and we move towards Christ. Why then in the Lord's Prayer is Jesus teaching his disciples to ask for the forgiveness of sins? When we come and receive our baptisms... It is a sign and seal of our forgiveness of sins through the being washed through the blood of Christ. We're forgiven, ultimately, forever. We are forgiven from our sin. But what Jesus reminds his disciples is that we will need to continue to ask for forgiveness because we will continue to sin until Christ returns. What we're doing is we're showing and confessing the age in which we live. We are called to confess our sins because we have actual sin. We sin ourselves. And because of the sin of Adam, which has been given to us, and through the generations of all mankind, has been imputed to us, we owe a debt. And as part of our liturgy, every single week, we come and we confess our sins, of our current sins. And Jesus is teaching us that in this current age, 
as we have prayed before, God's kingdom has not come yet in this finality. God's will is not done yet perfectly in our lives. And so each Sunday we come and we, we have this covenant renewal. Every week we come confessing our sins because we come to a God who loves us in Christ and promises to forgive us our sins. We come knowing that God has shown his face upon us and offered us an immeasurable grace. And yet for us, this is really hard to consider, right? This is really hard for us to understand because one might presume, oh, whoa, whoa, God's grace is unending, right? It'll never run out. No matter how much I sin, God's grace, through the blood of Jesus, we are covered. We're good. We're given the check, finished, completed. And this is what Paul says in Romans 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue to sin so that grace may abound? This is a question I get asked all the time by our high schoolers. If God's grace is unlimited, why should we change? Why, why should my heart not sin so that we can receive more grace, right? That, that, that's the logical question that Paul is asking in Romans 6. If God's grace is unmeasurable, why do we not continue to sin? But turn with me to Romans chapter 6, because Paul actually answers that there. It's on, it's on page 942 of your pew Bible. So Romans 6, 1, he says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue to sin that grace may abound. And in verse 2, he answers, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. Not that we would no longer be enslaved to sin, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one has died, has been set free from sin. Now if one has died with Christ, we believe that we will live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus Christ. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey his passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as though as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to, to God as instruments of righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. In Christ, 
we must consider ourselves so dead to sin and living to God, we are no longer able. We should no longer have a desire to sin because we have been set free from its curse through the blood of Christ. And as we mature in our walk with Christ, we should, we should always learn more about our sin. An illustration I, I always try to use is imagine there's, there's two arrows, right? As we mature in our life, the arrow pointing downward is our sin. A new Christian has a very limited understanding of sin, right? Typically, we think of grave sin. I've done this person wrong. But as we mature in our life, we understand just how deep our sin goes in our life. Our contempt for other people. Our desires. Even the things we aren't aware of lead us astray from God's word. But yet at the same time, this upward arrow, because this arrow is going downward, this upward arrow, as we mature in Christ, reveals how much bigger the cross of Christ is. Because the farther our sin goes, the farther our knowledge of sin goes, the more robust our understanding of the gospel becomes. Because we are forgiven in Christ. And this is what Jesus is teaching his disciples. No matter where you go, no matter what you do, your sins are forgiven. But yet, you are called as disciples of Jesus to come and even to repent of your continual sin until the day that Christ returns. And as his disciples, our knowledge of our sin will grow deeper and deeper and deeper, but our knowledge and understanding of God's grace should also become more grand and more consuming. And so Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, asking God to forgive them their sins. But then we come to the hard part of this prayer. Look at the standard in which God gives his disciples and forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. And then there's more. Look at verse 14. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will their Father forgive you your trespasses. Notice this isn't like the golden rule. Treat others as you want to be treated. This isn't Jesus' summary of the second table of the law. Love your enemies as yourself. This isn't treat others the way you want to be treated. It's forgive others. Or it's us asking God to forgive us in the same manner in which we forgive others. We're saying, God, forgive me with the same litmus test that I forgive others. God, forgive me in what you see in me, and forgive me 
when you look at my heart and look at my conscience in the same way that I look at other people. And that's scary. God, treat me like I treat others with their sin. Take the standard that I hold for everyone and use that standard against my own heart. That's the depths of our sin, right? A couple years ago at RYM, we had a one of the main teachers was teaching about something, and someone made a comment that comment, not a comment, a comment um, that in our lifetimes, in our own hearts, typically what we want for others is justice, right? Every time, and you've heard me use this illustration before, every time someone passes me speeding, I want justice. Where's, where's that cop, right? right? At this point, if they're coming into Somerville going about 50, I just say good luck. I don't, I don't, I don't ask for a cop. I just say good luck because I know there's one going to be there. When it comes to others who are doing something wrong, we typically want justice. But when we look at our own hearts and we come before God, typically what we want is forgiveness. We want mercy. We want to receive something that we don't deserve, but we want others to receive what they deserve. Turn with me um, just to page 829 in your Bibles to Matthew 18, where this understanding of forgiveness is just taught by Jesus himself. And I cannot, I, there's no better understanding or illustration. Matthew chapter 18, verse 21. I'm going to read through verse 35. Matthew 18, 21. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will a brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wishes to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold and his with his wife and his children and all of his servants. And I just lost my spot. And all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees. I'm laughing. I'll, I'll explain why I'm laughing in a minute. So the servants fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of the pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave him his debt. But when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused, and he put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And so they went and reported to the master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all your debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? 
And in his anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. So just just so we can understand this, the servant owed the master a talent. One talent equals 20 years wages. Right? So it says that this servant owed the master a thousand talents. A thousand talents. Sorry. Ten thousand talents. There we go. Ten thousand talents. That's two hundred thousand years of wages. That's generational wealth. And he forgave the servant. I laugh because this servant, what, what, what happens when the master says, you owe me 200,000 years worth of wages? The servant blindly falls on his knees and says, oh, I'll pay it. Just give me some time, right? Just, just give me a week. Uh, and I'll come out with 200,000 years worth of wages. And when the servant leaves, he finds another servant who owes him 100 denarii. Well, a denarii was a single day's wage. He was just forgiven 200,000 years of wages. This debt that is insurmountable. He was forgiven, and he found this fellow servant who owed him three months' wages, and he tried to choke him, and he threw him in jail. <laughs> who are we choking in our own lives for three months' wages? When we owe God 200,000 years worth of debt because of our own sin and because of the sin that was imputed to us from Adam. This is, th th this is the concept that helps us understand passages like Exodus 34. When we said the Lord passed before him proclaiming the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands. Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but will by no means clear the guilty. Visiting the inequity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. This gives us a glimpse into how great God's grace for us is in Christ. And yet we hold contempt on people. And we do not forgive them. And what we have to ask ourselves is, if we are unwilling to forgive others, have we really tasted the great generosity of God's grace for us? Because it is with the same standard of how we will forgive others that we will be forgiven ourselves. Jesus is telling his disciples, you should be able to forgive them 
because you have been forgiven. He's not asking them to give them something that they have not already received themselves. At 7 p.m. on Sunday evening on May 15th, or on, uh, on, in May of 2015, John Stoffel took his family on a walk in the park on a Sunday evening. He was with his wife, Erin, and their three children, Olivia, Selah, and Ezra. A man jumped off a bike with two handguns and began shooting people at random. John, the husband, and Aaron, the mom, were hit immediately, as was Olivia, the eldest daughter, 11 years old. The two children, the two youngest children, ran off to call for help. Aaron, the mother, took her body and covered Olivia. Aaron was rushed off to the hospital when the police got there. John and Olivia were pronounced dead at the site. Aaron was in critical condition, and for the first week after this slaughter, she could only write on a whiteboard to communicate with her family. And she told her family on the whiteboard John's last words that he said to her. His last words, forgive the shooter. The shooter that had just gunned him and his family down, he told her to forgive the shooter. This is someone who's experienced the forgiveness of Christ. Because there's no other reason that you could say, forgive the shooter as you're laying there, breathing your last breath. We are only asked to give what we have already been given. I'll end with one more story. This just this last month, I went to the youth leader conference in Nashville, and I spent a good time. I had a good friend um, from my a good friend from Arkansas, who's a minister now in Bozeman, Montana. And he was telling me the story. He's, he's a the family, family pastor up in Bozeman, Montana. And he was telling me about this man that they have at their church. Um, this man committed a heinous crime against his wife and against his family. This man was put in prison for over 20 years. And this man met Jesus while he's in prison. And he found this church by accident. He walked in the doors. He, of course, identified who he was. He identified what he had done. And the church put strict parameters around him. But the church offered him forgiveness. The church offered him eternal salvation in Christ. They offered him to come to the Lord's table to stand and say, my sins have been forgiven in Christ. 
his family never forgave him. And honestly, in their situation, it'd be really hard to understand how you could if you didn't know the forgiveness of Christ. The community did not forgive him. The community came and protested that they would allow a man such as this to come into their church and to worship and to confess and to be with them because our society doesn't understand forgiveness. They talk about forgiveness, but they don't understand that when the church talks about forgiveness, we are only talking about something we've already received in Christ. And as my friend was talking about him, he says, you've never met a man who is so sorrowful. I mean, his, his sin is public. Everyone knows what he has done. His own children won't talk to him. But yet, he knows that he's forgiven in Christ. And if the church will not forgive him, who will? Because as a church of Christ's disciples, by the amount that we forgive others, we will be forgiven. The church should be the place on earth that shows God's forgiveness. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying forgive and forget. That's a bad saying. We're supposed to remember, right? We're supposed to protect those who need to be protected. And for a man like this, parameters needed to be set for him and for the safety of everyone in the church. And so my question for us this morning is, are we willing to provide this type of forgiveness to our neighbors who have wronged us? And maybe they haven't wronged us in the same way. Are we willing to forgive people who talk bad about us? Are we willing to forgive people who simply we just don't like? Because if we're unwilling to forgive others, again, we have to ask the question, have we tasted the forgiveness that we are offered in Christ through the gospel? I told you this wasn't going to be easy. As Jesus' disciples, as we pray the Lord's Prayer, we are praying that God continues to come to us and offer us forgiveness and to open our eyes to show us and to teach us how we can forgive those who are in debt to us because of their sin. And we can only do that because of Christ. Let's pray.